I think it's a loaded word, success. I think it's a very personal definition of what success is. And just because somebody was working at a certain company or making a certain amount of money or went to a certain school or living in a certain area, maybe on the surface, it's success. But I think only that person knows inside how he or she feels. I think success comes from having the desire and the ability to listen to oneself and then the courage to act upon it. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive into today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide, The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to the world, all the listeners around the world of Insert Human. Thank you once again for joining me today. And we have a great conversation lined up for today with a guy named Matt Spielman, who was recommended to me by somebody recently. And we connected and we we're like, you know what? We should have a conversation on the show. Matt is an executive and organizational coach and the founder and head coach of something called Inflection Point Partners. And we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about that in a second. Prior to his coaching practice, he's had many years experience in the sort of senior executive operating roles, both public and venture-backed companies, although he looks like he's about 30, pisses me off. Uh, he's also an ICF professional certified coach and graduated from executive coaching program at Columbia and trained at the Duke Integrative Medicine Program and is a national board certified health and wellness coach. What we are here to talk about, though, is Matt's real, recently released book, inflection points, how to work and live with purpose. And, you know, as I just said to you, purpose is such a big word. I mean, if you, th if you did a word cloud on the world, I don't know that purpose would have been in the cloud 10 years ago, but today I think it would be a pretty big word. Corporations are being challenged to declare purpose, elevate purpose, uh, the business roundtable, that whole conversation a few years ago about expanding purpose, serving more stakeholders, et cetera. And then on the other end, uh, not other end, but the other side is employees or and or individuals. There's more and more conversation about seeking purpose, finding purpose. So my, my first question to you is what's going on there? 
Like what has changed in the world? What's the motive? What are the motivating forces? Why all of a sudden is purpose such a big thing? Well, Chris, first off, thank you for having me on the program. We had a great conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I was really looking forward to connecting and chatting today and finding purpose in our discussion today. Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> I don't think it's something new, Chris. I think it's something that's been felt, heard, and even spoken about for centuries, really finding meaning in what it is that we are working towards and how companies are formed and what they're trying to accomplish. I just think we're talking about it a lot more. You know, for me, I go back to kind of the book of all books uh, in the 20th century, which is uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And he was pretty, he was pretty clear on, you know, he who had probably she, you know, he or she who has a why can work through almost any how. And he was paraphrasing Frederick Nietzsche in that book. Simon Sinek later sort of wrote a book on, you know, basically it all starts with why kind of that's the foundation of, of everything. And I think people are just talking about it more now. So corporations realize that it's not just enough to have a what that we're working towards. We're going to work towards a certain revenue number or we're going to expand on a certain continent. What's driving that is why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? I go back to an article I read by Jim Collins right before he wrote Good to Great and Built to Last. It's an HBR piece and talks about companies' vision and their mission, um, though he uses some, some different phrasings there. And he talks about companies where they set out, they had a clear what? Disney, for example, they sort of had a goal that they were working towards. Could have been, we're going to expand in theme parks and something like that, or a certain revenue number. But why are we doing this? To make people happy. And... 3M was to solve unsolved problems in a creative way. It was sort of the why. So Chris, the the medium term answer to this question is companies and people have been talking about it for quite some time, just not as much as it's getting, uh, we're talking about it now or the attention that it really warrants and deserves in the regular conversation. And and do you think that is in part that we're seeking, kind of back to Frankel, we're seeking greater stability, greater clarity, greater. I mean, I, I accept your point that we've been talking about this probably since cave people days right. or seeking wise in a, in a bunch of different ways, but this sort of elevation of it right now feels like a response, not the creation of it. Cause the point is it's been around for a long time. The elevation yeah. of it feels like a response to something. I mean, you yeah. know, there's some, some theory that the, the, the individual part of this is COVID caused us all pause. We had to look in the mirror. We began to question our work, the nature of our life. You know, we had a lot of time to ourselves that resulted in, huh, I'm actually, this actually yeah. isn't fulfilling, you know, yeah. but I think the purpose thing was, was tracking before COVID uh, potential. I'm just, I'm just, I guess. Yeah. So I, some- I think, look, I've spoken a lot about this, you know, this or the great resignation and that COVID was a, a, a catalyst for that. I, I actually, I don't think that that's the case. I think it was, there was just sort of pent up demand. And I think a lot of people sort of who weren't going to change jobs or leave jobs. I think ultimately they did when they actually could. Right. Right. I've actually seen, I've seen the math on that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what's even, I refer to it more as the greater resignation, or in my mind, the great resignation is actually people for a very long time, Chris, have been resolved to maybe only 31% of people being engaged in their work. And that's sad to me. That actually echoes the, 
Henry David Thoreau quote, which I talk about in the book, where it's, he says, the mass of people lead lives of quiet desperation. And I think that that's actually the case and how it plays out in people's day-to-day jobs and their careers. And I think for the, let's say for the last three or four years, that is becoming a little bit more unacceptable to people. And I think in part, I think COVID helped. There was more time to reflect. There was more time for pause. There were more conversations. People were asking bigger questions and they were trying to find out some of the answers. But I also think it, it's a function of, you know, where everything that can be connected is connected. And where this, there's infinite opportunities, there's infinite stimuli, there's infinite things. And I think it's prompting, huh, that's interesting, but I like to do that. Huh, where? She is over here. She's in that country. Maybe I like to live there. I think it's just the overwhelming amount of stimuli that we're exposed to is triggering, huh, that may be interesting. So I, I, I don't think mm. anything really fundamentally has changed. I think it's multifactorial, I, I guess, right. is the answer. Well, if there's a change, maybe it's just awareness, which is not mm. so much change. It's just awareness, <laughs> awareness of yes. opportunity or awareness of dissatisfaction or just, just straight up awareness. And I think the tolerance, I think the point of tolerance has kind of reached a point where it's, you know, you know what, I may not have to commute five days a week and travel 48 minutes in my career. And there may be an alternative. And I think COVID may have helped with that, but there was, there was plenty of dissatisfaction you know, prior to that. Um, and there's been a trend of asking these bigger questions and people getting on the path of trying to answer them and make changes. This is like a, maybe an unfair question, but on the corporate side of the purpose equation, do you, I mean, this is an unanswerable question, but there's some skepticism about whether the, whether the corporate world is going down this path because they understand the importance of it and accept the importance of it, or is they're going down the, the path because of they're responding to employee yeah. demand for a better why or a bigger why. Like, yeah. I'm just curious what yeah. you're. Yeah. So the, the way you phrase it, it's sort of binary in terms, you know, it's, it's an either, or I think the answer is it's an end, yeah. right? So yeah. It triggers in my mind this this topic called should versus could. You're implying with that question that corporations and senior executives are basically saying they should adopt a certain way of going about things if they're going to get client buy-in, employee buy-in, and retention. When in fact, I think the answer is, yeah, there may be element of that, but also they're sitting in their boardrooms and they're going around a table and saying, what could we do now? That would really be meaningful for our clients and potentially the world around us and the employees as well. So this sort of exogenous external forces of should, and we can also layer that on people. Like we're often, hey, you know what, Chris, I think you should do this. I'm like, maybe, maybe not, Matt. Um, the more important question for you to ask yourself is at this moment, at this inflection point, what could I do that would be meaningful for the people around me, for myself, for the people who are under me? And I think those organizations, and I'm seeing it, you know, I have several hundred data points where it's the organizations are who are aware of what's going on around them. And they realize it is just plain good business, not only from a client perspective and a global perspective and the world around them perspective, but employee perspective and all of that buy-in and retention and even re- recruiting as well. Even just kind of productivity. Right. Um, if people understand sort of why they're there and w- not only that, but also what they're doing is working in service of something a little bit more than what their task is contributing to at that day, that's what employees are looking for, sort of value, meaning, and we get back back to that word purpose. Yeah. 
It's funny, I, I, you're triggering. I was reading this morning a book called uh, Speed and Scale by John Doerr, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. writer Perkins guy. Yep, yep. Really, have, I don't know, have you read it? it, it it's really... Uh, yes, and, and I just great respect for him. I started like many, many years ago. I used to spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's just a very, very well thought, very well presented roadmap for how to solve climate. And I encourage anybody, in addition to reading your book, read John Doerr's book. But he, the piece I ended up with this morning, right before I sh- shut down to, to get to work, was a quote from Larry Fink about from BlackRock about what you just said. <laughs> this is not about productivity. This is about just good business that connecting to purpose and and connecting to all the stakeholders in a more a more why way a more dimensional way a more meaningful way you know it's just good business no no you're you're absolutely right and a manifestation of that is there's going to be more productivity there's going to be but the the core reason why you're doing it it kind of needs to be a little bit more authentic and pure and i think you get real real buy-in from employees because they, they, they want something more than just showing up, you know, at eight or eight 30 or nine to five or six or seven. And they want to know kind of what they're doing is contributing to something a little bit more, a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. Do you remember that there's a Daniel pink thing around um, that every, not every employee, all, a lot of employees seek three things, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And if you sort of examine that through the like human lens of, of course, you know, you want to be the best you can be at your your function. You want to have freedom, authority, accountability, responsibility. And then, yes, you want to connect to something that's maybe bigger than you or, or even bigger than the company. I was emphatically sort of nodding my head and, and agreeing with you. And it's those managers who also realize those three things that you just mentioned. And does the employee feel valued? Do they feel heard? Do their opinions matter? Have I spoken to them about their development? Have I given them feedback? Uh, do I have the resources to get my work done? So there are uh, there's some other elements oh, yeah. that the Gallup organization has in the late 90s introduced engaging and talking to 80,000 managers and 400 companies and you know millions and millions of, of employees over the years. There are 12 questions that really matter to employees and that, that they measure the level of engagement in, in the workforce. And they're not only what you just said, those three, and there are a handful of other sort of complements to that, that really can serve as a guidepost for really effective management. Mm. So I'm going to flip the switch on you a little bit. And um, I definitely want to come back to the book, but I want to talk about your why of why you were a very successful executive working in some very well-known and very, you know, sort of successful companies. Why you pivoted and became a coach? Like what was underlying that for you? That was a pretty big change. Like how did you get there? What motivated? Was there a moment and aha? Like (laughs) what happened there, Matt? So I I think it comes down to, you, you, you mentioned, you know, successful career, successful companies. I think it's a loaded word, success. I think it's a very personal definition of what success is. And just because somebody was working in a certain company or making a certain amount of money or went to a certain school or living in a certain area, and maybe on the surface, it's success. But I think only that person knows inside how he or she feels. I, I sort of harken back to it was, it was my, there was a class at, at business school where we were evaluating that we had the business school case we were reading and this, you know, protagonist A had the opportunity to go to company one or company two. And, you know, he had a certain title and certain pay and everyone was in the classroom. He should go to this company. It's more of a prestigious company. 
and uh, you know, there was more money and all that stuff. And he'd be more successful if he did that. And I vehemently, I kind of like raised my hand and the professor said, Matt, you're kind of jumping out of your seat. And I said, yeah, I think it becomes, it comes down to what is your definition of success? And he said, well, Matt, what's your definition of success? And I sort of put the words together, something like, I think success comes from having the desire and the ability to listen to oneself and then the courage to act upon it. Mm. And the sort of the internal reflection and asking some of those questions and also engaging the world around you and writing some of those maybe hypotheses down of something that somebody may want, something that may he or she wants to do and pursue that. There's success in, in the attempt. Um, and so I, I was, I sort of look at it as I may have had this job. However, I didn't feel like I was successful is it, really kind of where it, it mm-hmm. came down. Mm-hmm. And I sought out working with a coach in May of 2010 and Peter Hazelrig is my coach and has been for 12 years. And it's one of the most important relationships in my entire life. And he gave wow. me, he said something so simple yet so profound um, so I'm, I'm, I'll share it. It sounds almost like really mad that that was really profound, but he said, Matt, just cause you could do something well, doesn't mean that you should do it. Mm. And that sort of gave me the permission to begin to explore kind of the way I was, I was feeling a little bit unsatisfied and maybe I, I should have felt like, Hey, like this is a great job. And um, I was at an awesome company. I was at MTV networks and I was in a really great group and working with really good people. And what I realized, Chris, was my fuel, my why kind of my, what drove me was seeing people grow, develop and thrive. And yes, I was in management roles and I just, man, I was so excited and energized and I so enjoyed seeing the people who worked for me to, instead of me going to see the CEO, I gave them an opportunity to go to CEO, to see the CEO or that they would go on the business trip or they would prepare for something like that. I were telling them about a promotion or giving them feedback and seeing them kind of work through that. That was my, however, I had a product or a service, you know, in that particular company or other companies that I was a chief marketing officer, I was a chief revenue officer. And I kind of want to move to a place where I could do that directly, where I could impact people directly, where I could see them grow, develop and thrive. Or as I say, my mission is to ignite careers and energize lives and to trigger the fist pump in you, whatever that version is in you, that's what drives me. And I get to do that now directly, not necessarily going through the proxy of being a manager. Um, And just, just one, the, once I realized when I turned to Peter, my coach, and I said, you know what, Peter, this, all these exercises we're doing and this introspection and also talking to other people, I realized I want to do what you're doing. And then that set me down a path of how do I do it the right way? So training and schooling was an absolute for me because today anybody can call him or herself a coach. And there really is a science behind the coaching conversation. And I just, I went into a multi-year mode of understanding the science behind it. Yeah. You told me the other day, I mean, you, you spent a year stu- studying and this is not like a three month, you know, uh, no, course. I mean, if, if there were a PhD in coaching uh, after you know six years of this, I'd, I'd be close. Um, yeah. And even for, you know, we use a goal setting or goal achieving model here. That was part of a thesis I wrote for the Columbia Coaching Certification Program, where you know it's a 25-page paper going back to the 1950s of Locke and Latham about what goal setting theory is actually effective. And what people have been using for decades, the SMART goal paradigm is not very smart. So I wanted to rewrite that. All <laughs> steeped in goal setting theory, positive psychology, and the science behind you know, coaching. Yeah. And I think that's a good segue into the book. But before we go there, I just want to ask you sort of a, a leading question, I guess. 
you mentioned this idea of the desire and willingness. I'm, I'm not sure I'm getting it exactly right, but the desire and willingness to look at self, which is, which is introspection, I suppose. And then the courage, the courage to yeah. act on it. As you've worked with scores of people of all different shapes and sizes all over the world, is the courage part the hardest part? So, well, I, if you want to do kind of like a, a waiting system, I might say the courage part is the 70% and weighted. Yeah. And then the, the introspection reflection uh, is 30%. I'll tell you, just let me just start with the 30% part. People are running so fast around these treadmills and they're just trying to keep up. They're not really asking the important questions, the incisive questions. And we talk about something in our coaching engagements called slowing down to speed up. And I think, yes, somebody how he or she is. What's the first thing they said? Busy. Everybody's busy. And man, that, that's just unfortunate because I think that, you know, a little bit of take a deep breath, look within, look around. So I think it's about 30% we need to slow down in order for us to go faster. But yes, the, the courage, you know, sometimes drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know, yeah, I am going to try to secure that position, you know, at those types of companies, or I'm going to try to row a seven minute 2K and for any in the audience who's a rower, or I'm going to try to complete the Boston Marathon, or I'm going to try to, uh, you know what, I'm going to put myself out there and start dating. If, if that's a manifestation of the work that we've done by slowing down, that is that can be scary. However, I go back to Frankel. He who understands why they're setting that goal can get through almost anyhow. And it's easier on mile 18 or 19 to actually make their way through the balance of the, the eight or so miles because they know that their family, they're doing it because they haven't seen their family in a while. They're going to be reunited at the finish line and they're going to embrace them at the end. And they've had some health scares the last couple of years. And this is a meaningful milestone in their life. So it's getting back to the why. And for me at age 44, transitioning from executive to executive coach, I was very clear on why I wanted to do this. And people said, Matt, this is a real big risk for you. And without sounding obnoxious, I, I tried to be as, as real and authentic as possible. My response was the real risk is that I actually didn't do it. Right. And that I right. found 10 years from now at 54 that I still hadn't made the transition. And I, I still I still could have done it at 54. Um, but the real risk is that I didn't do it. Right. So, so just to capture something there, because my next question was going to be, if courage is 70 percent of the equation, what have you learned as the enabler of courage? And I think what you just said is attaching to the why the goals mm -hmm. attached to the why. Yeah. The Frankel point can sort of push you, nudge you into, into the courage place. Is, is that fair to say? And that comes from the reflective part, right? So when I sit with a client for the first time, we don't walk away with a game plan and on session one, we want to understand what's driving that person. What does that person value? What are some of the meaningful experiences? So it's, we need to, that slowing down piece, because that, that's actually the, the foundation for, okay, then you set a goal. Then you, okay, I'm, I am going to do that career transition yeah. or I am going to whatever, because there's a foundation there. Yeah. That's the reflective part. And maybe, you know, my, my waiting system, I, I never actually said that before in an answer to, which I think was a very good question. Maybe it's more like 50-50 to be candid, you know, the introspection combined with just having the courage and the tenacity, you know, knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to try to be as comfortable as I can possibly be in the discomfort. I well said. And I, I do think there's there's something to this. We so as humans, we so desperately want the answer to be simple and immediate. <laughs> so it's like, oh, so Matt told me he's my coach and he told me I needed to look within. So I'm going to do that this afternoon around three. <laughs> 
And then at 3.15, I will have right. clarity. And then, you know, and then by four, I'll be able to, and you're like, no, no, it, it's a far more complex. Yeah. It is. The most important part of what you just said is at 3 p.m. today, I'm going to, there may be, you know, a couple of exercises that I'll do. So that's great. Uh, committing to some type of action. The actual claim there in some instances, the water could be murkier even after initial introspection, but, and, and, and that's okay. That's okay. And again, I think we have to fight our human tendency to want everything to be simple and quick and in a little box with a little bow and absolute and black. And I wrote a piece called, this is funny, called 50 Shades of Grey and has nothing to do with the movie or the book. And it was all about that the answer to everything is often in the middle and the middle is murky and complicated, but we don't want to go to the murky and the complicated. So we, we opt for the simplicity of the polls. Um, so back to the book, why'd you write the book? The reason why I wrote the book is because I, I saw far too many people who are living lives of quiet desperation and in their jobs, working eight, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, five, six, sometimes seven days a week, and just sort of walking around like zombies. And that was unacceptable to me. And I actually thought if you want to name something, the great resignation, I actually would call that the great resignation. So I wanted to do something to ignite careers, to energize lives, and to engender that fist pump, to trigger that, that fist pump. So I wrote the book to effectuate, you know, that change, to have that type of an impact. And it's not just a, a nice and all, you know, chapter one, I go through the why and this kind of why I wrote the book, but I provide the tools to actually begin to schedule that 3 p.m. session where you're actually going in and, and doing an exercise. And you can kind of take control over, huh, how can I sort of find that which might light me up, might energize me, might trigger more engagement. Um, so that's really why I wrote the book. The other thing as kind of a compliment, another driver, the world of coaching has taken off. Like in the last 10 years, coaching, whether it's career coaching or executive coaching or health and wellness coaching, some people use uh, life coaching as a phrasing. Um, it has really moved from something that's remedial of, hey, Matt didn't do so well in his review. Let's get him a coach. It's now Matt's one of our biggest stars. Let's mm. get him a coach and either you know, maintain that. where he is. And that sort of you know scarlet letter C to badge of honor, coaching has taken off. And I think today anybody can call him or herself a coach, as I mentioned before. And I think just like any other profession, there should be training there. And I, I go through extensively, you know, what is a coach? What should a coach not do? What is a therapist? What is a mentor? What is an advisor? What is a consultant? What is a manager? And so I wanted to get a little bit clear on that. But more than anything, Chris, you know, there are tools there that people can download. And they, a bunch of people have written me after reading the book and saying, Matt, I, I kind of made this a workbook. I hope you know, my, I wrote all in it. And I downloaded stuff. And it's like, maybe next time you printed the form factor can be a little bit larger, almost like a real workbook. And that's actually, that was the original intention maybe poorly executed in the smaller form factor. So mm -hmm. uh, a second printing. Got it. I, you, you sort of answered this, but I'm going to ask it a slightly different way. What is the, the persona? Like, who did you write this book for? I understand the, the lives of quiet desperation and there are, there are sadly millions of humans living those lives. So the book is for them, but is there a sort of another layer or, or, level of this, you know, is, is there an archetype of the kind of person or not really like this? Just so it, it's not necessarily an archetype or an avatar that I had in mind. You know, I was, it, it's a little bit of a, you know, an autobiography as well. I was somebody who was living a life of quite, maybe not that extreme, but 
you know, showing up to an office each day when I felt like I should have been showing up to maybe another office or someplace else Mm -hmm. each day. And that wasn't a great feeling, recognizing that we have finite time. And uh, I just, every day I went there, I think I I felt like I should be going somewhere else. And now having over 3000 sessions in and around this topic of those who are in careers that may be viewed from the outside, like to your point about, well, Matt, you were a successful leader. Like, but they know on the inside that there's sort of some mm. some angst or like things aren't horrible, like things aren't like they can't pay their mark. It's not necessarily like that. It's more they feel like maybe there's more that they can do, even in that, their current role, that they could maybe reimagine it and do other things or um, work with another person, work in a different division or, or complement something. But it was more for that person. And I'm actually I'm a fervent believer that very rarely are wholesale changes, 180 degree changes necessary. Smart changes, even small, smart and small changes to even small or big things, well-chosen things can yield hugely positive outcomes. So it was actually for that person, Mm. whether it's reimagining a current sort of job or potentially realizing that there may be something else at another organization or another kind of industry or category that they may want to do. That was principally where this came from because I was one of those people. Yeah, And I also have the most data, the most research, the most touch points with those people. And that's where the, the tools were developed from. So I just wrote down fast and big, which is, I think, the, the general human sensibility about change, that if I'm going to undertake a change, a career change, a life change or whatever change, Uh, The presumption is I should do it quickly and it's going to be big. And the big, I think, paralyzes us because it's so big. And what you're proposing is slow and little. (laughs) Yeah. In in a funny way, like kind of the opposite, like little's okay. Little. Oh, little, little is amazing, Chris. And you know why? Because (laughs) if I were to say to you that, you know, tomorrow you need to reimagine something completely different in a different place, you're like, oh my goodness, I don't really even know where to begin. That's like, you know, asking somebody to go run 200 miles. Very few people can actually do that. And the likelihood is they're not even going to get out of bed and and start on that journey. But if I said to you, you know what, I I think about it as like the one push-up rule. I I talk about this with with people who are trying to get back into fitness. Commit to me that over the next two weeks that you'll do one push-up a day. The chances of them doing one push-up a day over the next two weeks is almost 100%, if not 100%. And what's the chances that that person's going to do more than one push-up a day? Probably pretty likely. Yeah, probably yeah, pretty, uh, also yeah. probably 100%. And if I said, well, you have to do you know 50 or 100 push-ups a day over the next two weeks, they're probably not going to do that. And this just talked a little bit about, and there's a great book called, I think it's A, a Beautiful Constraint. And it talks about sometimes in environments or situations where we don't have that much latitude, like we still have to pay the mortgage. We still have to pay for private school, but what could we do that actually does flex or enables us to express ourselves a little bit more the way we want to do? So we may have a job and on a scale from one to 10, it may register as a four or five, but what might be something, you know, like, I like, I love that question, this question, like, what could I do that would inch it up to a six or a seven? Huh, you know, Chris over there and another group, like he's super interesting. I know he's working on, on something very cool. I know it's not, maybe I could partner with him. I'm like, just thinking, you don't have to like completely quit your job or like, you know, yeah. interview for, there may be things at the margin that you can do. Or my entire life, I've wanted to be a comedian. And now I'm 52 years old. I'm a professional. I really do like my work and I'm married. And I have this wonderful family. I'm not probably not going to be a comedian. But, you know, I heard this guy say that Caroline's Comedy Club in New York has a seven week course. 
You kind of learn from some of the best. And then you can take the stage and do a four minute, a three minute set or so, you know, at the end. And maybe I'm not going to be the next Jerry Seinfeld, but who knows? Maybe not. But you know what? I can sign up for that course. And at Monday nights from seven to nine, I can do that. And you know what? That energy, that excitement, that enjoyment, man, it triggers. I'm even just talking about it because it's a conversation I have with somebody. Sort of getting excited, even just talking about it. I think we we talked about this a little bit, but what do you think happens in our brains to cause us to say, "Oh no, 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 don't, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna, no," like we're pretty good at putting up blockades, right? <laughs> we are amazing, and it's you know why, Chris? It keeps us safe. Yeah, yeah. We know what we know. This is even if it might be uncomfortable in the sense that we're not fully expressing ourselves and you know, all the things we were talking about before, but it's comfortable. Humans are kind of, we're walking paradoxes, right? We have this, all these, that we have this conscious that we want to express and we, these needs and wants that we want to. And at the same time, we're trying to perpetuate the species, right? So we don't want to get out of a comfort zone because it's dangerous. And the equivalent of, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago is there's a bear outside the cave, there's a bear outside the cave, there's a bear outside the cave, there's a bear outside the cave. So I'm going to be very protective. I'm going to stay in the cave when actually we do want to explore, we do want to go out. And so it's living with, and, and I fully respect, like we're preservation and staying alive and staying safe and not putting ourselves in harm, harm's way. However, our software hasn't caught up with the hardware. And the hardware may take <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands. One of my, my positive psychology professors came up with that. That is not mine. I can't take credit for that. Um, she's great. And it may take thousands of years for us to, like a lot of people, when they take the stage, it literally feels and to some people like they're about to die. Because it, it's their mind doesn't know how to make sense of, well, I'm getting up. I'm talking to people for the next six minutes. If I make a mistake, I make a mistake, but I'm not going to, it's not by punishment of death. However, we need to, you know, the hardware needs to adjust with this newfangled sort of world that we're, when I say new, thousands of years new right. um, that we're living in now versus. So the one word answer to what you were saying before is it's safe. We know it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, we've got a few minutes left. I'd love to talk, just give us a sense of the arc of the book, you know? So it sounds like you start out with a why, but how does, how does, and, and yeah. one of the references is a hands-on existential navigational tool that walks the reader through how to identify what really matters in their life and how to achieve it. I love that. But just, <laughs> can you just give us a little frame, a little frame on? I can, I can. So after we've spent the time, we've slowed down, to go faster. And now we're going to talk about the go faster part and we understand sort of what drives us. So yeah, it kind of starts on the why part. So what is what does it look like? So audience, imagine a single page laminated document, somewhat akin to maybe what a college football coach has on Saturday or a football NFL coach has on Sunday for calling the plays to win that particular game. This is your own playbook or we call it game plan. And it's part of a larger game plan system or GPS. The, the system part is the information we gather and then the partnership with the coach to execute all that. But what we're talking about now, Chris, is the game plan. And the game plan houses generally four goals and think of you know, in columns. So four goals and on the document is the what of the goal. So like, you know, what is it that you want to achieve and bring about by what time horizon? So by what date? the action items, the how we're going to help bring that about. And very important on, on this particular goal achieving theory is the consequence or the why behind that goal. 
So not just, you know, I want to run the New York City Marathon in November of 2022, but tell me about the meeting. And, and it, it gets jotted down in two or three or four sentences on the document. Mm-hmm. And then we we tap into the power of visualization. So athletes have been doing it for decades and, and why not all of us? So we select an image from the internet that crystallizes and captures that particular goal of what it means to you to either work on it or achieve it. And then there's a bit of a hashtag at the top, you know, like crossing the line or something like branding that particular goal. Mm-hmm. So that's one goal. And we would create three others. And typically, if I'm working with an executive, they're typically two and a half or three work-related goals. And then, you know, in the dozens and dozens of folks, it's sort of like a half or one and a half are, could be a familial, could be a personal health goal type of a thing. Because um, we don't we don't live in a vacuum. We don't work in a vacuum that we're all these interconnected pieces. And we've done something called the purpose puzzle. We've evaluated where we are across these different nine facets or pieces of your life that contribute to how you're doing on a day-to-day basis. The tool is in the book and people can download it and sort of work through. It's very, very simple. Um, But it's a single page laminated document that houses four goals and the goals are explicit. They're things that you can action against. We tap into the power of visualization. They are integrated goals. Ideally, we're working in service of one can help achieve Mm -hmm. another. Mm -hmm. These are all out of the the kind of the, the platinum version of, of goal achieving theory and positive psychology. Um, they should be stretch goals, but they should be hard, but not Herculean. So we work through this document, we finalize it. And then what's key, Chris, here is we encourage you, the client, to give it to key stakeholders in your life. So my wife wow. and my two boys, they have, I, I write two to three a year because I have more micro goals working in service of a larger sort of broader vision. Mm-hmm. And they know what I'm working on and working towards. In business, we talk about accountability, transparency, and alignment, almost where they become cliches. If you hand somebody your, your game plan, that is accountability, that is transparency, and that is alignment in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And that gives you the greatest percent chance of those goals actually seeing the light of day. It's really profound and fundamental. And I have to say for the audience, Matt's been showing hand, showing me, we're, we're on video, obviously, and he's been showing me this the, the laminated sheet. And, you know, part of me is like, wow, in the digital age, an analog, you know, a, a printed laminated thing. But the psychology of that is profound. I'm projecting here. It's present. It's not in your folder on your on your desktop. It's present and it's laminated, yeah. which means you might spill coffee on it. Absolutely. It That's one, one, the, one reason we laminate it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it goes in your you can travel with you. Like it's it's brilliant. Just that little piece of the of the tool yeah. is, is really brilliant. Well, it, it it's really interesting you say that. So one of uh, my clients is Alex Rodriguez, the former baseball player and the the business owner of A-Rod Corp and affiliated entities. And he posted on LinkedIn a few months ago, he has an image of him, sort of his Monday morning focus type of thing. And he has his game plan right, right off, you know, right as where his oh left hand is. And he's sort of staring at his computer. And it's, it's, you know, in a world where we have infinite opportunity However, finite time and energy, I find that if these are well chosen, these are four sort of signals amid all the noise that is around us. And it also can serve as a 
kind of a deflector shield during the day where you get that email, you get that text or you get that call and you may be inclined to go do something, but Hey, wait, okay. You know, I sat with Matt or I, I, I created this document and I know that these are my, my four rocks, my four pillars this is my game plan. And I'm going to kind of focus on that. So it's almost in some ways very liberating to people. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, I think so much of our existence is, in a way, I think we're overwhelmed. We're both overwhelmed. You talked to before about just how much information, how much choice, how much everything is, and that's overwhelming. And at the same time, we're underwhelmed that the feeling of our life is not satisfying. You know, there's there's something missing. And to have a, a GPS tool like yours, which it deals with the overwhelmed and it enables to rise above the underwhelmed. I mean, it's really quite brilliant. Yeah. So just to wrap up, in addition to reading the book, well, I always try to end the show with, you know, what are one or two things that you would you would offer up to the audience that, I mean, obviously, besides reading the book, what can somebody do at 3.15 today? <laughs> like, what, what would you advise? I love that you said that because, yes, if we, we carve out even 15 minutes later in the day, we're messaging to ourselves that, you know, we can take action and I matter and what I feel matter and what I, what I think matters and all that stuff. What can you do? So no, I'm actually not even, if you want to read the book, you can read the book. That's great. There's the, the free tools that you just kind of download. You can do this afternoon at three or three fifteen. Um, there's, I think it's the inflectionpointsbook.com. You download uh, the materials and I would say, do this. There's something called the purpose puzzle, which I referenced before. Super simple. The purpose picture, puzzle, puzzle. It's called the purpose puzzle. Okay. And the purpose puzzle picture a three by three sort of jigsaw puzzle in front of you. And each of those pieces on it has something like career, friends, physical environment, finances, community, health, family, life partner, spirituality. So that's nine. And evaluate. So if you want to get a snapshot of where you are today, evaluate each of those on a scale from one to five, five being I'm feeling great about how that's contributing and you know the level of satisfaction, how it's contributing to me on a day-to-day basis. One being, man, not so good. Maybe I want to make I want to make a change there. The tool actually enables you to you, know, you can do the one through five, and then you can there's a color code. You know, one is pink and five is crimson, whatever in, in the middle. So it visually represents where you are today, your inventory of these different drivers of how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis. Okay, mm-hmm. that that's one thing you can do. Very easy. Take 10 minutes, maybe 15 if you want to think about them a little bit more. The other thing that you can do is also a tool that you can download, and it's called the Sources and Drains exercise. So think about the tasks that you do on a day-to-day basis. And ideally, it's in the moment. You actually keep a document that's off to your left or to your right as you're doing something. You're sort of thinking to yourself, hmm, you know, I'm talking to Chris right now, man. I'm really coming alive. So like, really just be specific. Like That would be on the left-hand side of the page of a mm. source of energy for you. Mm. And think about a little bit like, why why am I, well, I get to talk about something I'm passionate about. Maybe somebody's listening and it really impacts them in a positive way, man. That lights me up. Okay. Sources of it. And you just kind of keep doing, and then there's things that you may do during the day. And of course we all do them during the day. There were their drains of energy. Mm. Keep track of that over the course of a week or two weeks. And then you may have two or three or four or five sheets of paper of the things that give you energy versus the things that take energy away. You're going to begin to identify themes and you're going to basically also see, am I casting myself correctly? Am I doing more of the things that I kind of want to do versus, mm. you know, fewer of the things that I, that I don't necessarily want to do. And by the way, Chris, you know, I don't live in a world of unicorns and rainbows as much as I enjoy my job. There are things that I do that I don't necessarily love doing. What? So I'm not what? looking for a complete panacea. <laughs> the third and final thing 
that you could do. Well, there's more, but just for the sake mm -hmm. of uh, rounding it out here and a document that you can download is I do provide this game plan template and begin to look at your purpose puzzle. Think about the things that energize you and begin to write in what might be a goal that you want to work towards, keeping in mind the consequence and the meaning and the why behind that particular goal. And it's a simple PowerPoint document. You could use your PowerPoint for it um, on, on your computer. You can also print it out and kind of write in it as well. That's great. So the book is Inflection Points, How to Work and Live with Purpose. I assume it's available on all the Amazon and everything else. It is. And then how can people reach you? You're, you've got a website, obviously. Like what's, what are ways to connect with Matt Spielman? Yeah, so on, on, on the website, people can write in and it's, well, they can write me directly if they want. It's Matt, M-A-T-T, at, and then the mouthful that's coming. It's inflectionpointpartnersllc.com. But if you just go to the, the book site, um, theinflectionpointsbook.com, you can just fill out the, to get the, the, the tools. And then in the comment section, just say that you want to talk to Matt and, and I'll follow up. That's great. Well, thank you for being on the show and thank you for the work that you're doing. I mean, you thank are you. changing lives. You are, you know, one person at a time, whether it's A-Rod or anybody else, you know, you're, you're helping people realize, realize the meaning of a life, realize the purpose of a life. And I don't know, frankly, I don't know of any greater cause. So I, I commend you for, for that. I commend you for having the courage to pivot way back when and for doing the hard work to become the coach that you are. So thank you for that. Well, Chris, I, I appreciate the words and I could say the same thing right back to you. So if it weren't for your platform, we wouldn't be having this conversation. There you go. So thanks, man. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books, and if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.